Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 13th. Hello to the world. I'm talking to you from San Francisco, and particularly hello to our loyal LitHub audience. Um, Last month on LitHub, there was a really interesting piece by um, the British-based writer Marianne Sieghart. Uh, why are so many men still resistant to reading women, Marianne asked, and she answers herself, um, and she's quoting a report. Uh, men who read fiction tend to read fiction by men, while women read fiction by both women and men. Uh, consequently, fiction by women remains special interest, while fiction by men still sets the standard for quality, narrative, and style. Of course, quality, narrative, and style are in inverted commas. Um, she notes that just as men are reluctant to read female authors, they're also reluctant to review or recommend them. Um, and then I think this is from Marianne herself. When I'm asked to recommend books, I nearly always choose women and I nearly always choose black women or women of color because I know if I don't, they're very unlikely to be on those lists. The essay on LitHub last month by Marianne Seacart was taken from her new book, The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and what we can do about it. It's not just a book about writing, it's a book about the world. And I'm thrilled that Marianne is joining us from Wiltshire in England. Marianne, um, on this reading front, um, one of the things that occurred to me is, do women, or men for that matter, really always notice the gender of uh, the writers that they read? or? Is this something somehow intuitive? I think men notice it more than women do. So I think women on average will tend to choose just a book that has been well reviewed or has been recommended to them, irrespective of the gender of the author. Whereas I think men tend to reach first for a book written by another man. And some of them even see it as somehow a bit embarrassing, a little bit emasculating to be seen reading a book by a woman. And in fact, a man said to me the other day that he was reading a book on a train written by a woman with quite a sort of feminine cover. And another man whom he had never met before, a complete stranger, came up to him and said, why are you reading that? Which is extraordinary sort of policing, isn't it? Policing of masculinity. I can't imagine a woman ever coming up to me on a train if I were reading a book by a man and asking me why on earth I thought I'd read a book like that. I'm not sure how carefully you've looked into the numbers. How does it break down in terms of the difference between um, gay men and straight men in, in terms of whether they're comfortable reading female writers? No idea. Sorry, I don't, I don't think there are data on that. But in what general, would... on average, women will read roughly 50-50 books written by men and books written by women. It's about 55-45 um, and but the writing a, industry now, the book industry, particularly the fiction business, tends to um, be dominated by women, doesn't it? Can I, can I, can I just finish my sentence, please? Uh, so women will read roughly 50-50 books written by men and books written by women. Men on average will read 80-20. So they will read four books by a man for every book by a woman. 
How does it break down, though, in terms of the numbers of readers when it comes to fiction um, between men and women? I, my understanding, and again, I'm not an expert on this, is that um, the, the fiction business is increasingly dominated by female readers. Is that fair? Yes, it does seem to have been. And, and I don't understand why that's the case, because, you know, two or three decades ago, most of the so-called great American novelists uh, or indeed great British novelists were men and men read fiction. They read fiction less perhaps than women did in those days. But male readers of fiction seem to have taken a nosedive. Uh, and, and I don't really understand why that is. Do you, do you have any insight on that? No, I, it's it's an interesting idea. And again, it's cause and effect of what's causing what and as a consequence in terms of the number of female writers versus female readers. And how does it break down in terms of the difference between fiction and nonfiction? I know you write about that in your essay. Yes, I mean, women have always read fiction more than men and men have always read nonfiction more than women. Uh, in nonfiction, again, men read many more non-fiction but by men than by women but women also read in a more gendered way in non-fiction so they read more books by women than by men so there's less of a discrepancy but they are still 65 percent more likely to read a non-fiction book by a man than a man is to read a non-fiction book by a woman and men oh, will often say to me well i look at you know i look at the covers of these novels by women and i can tell they're just not aimed at me and they may be right that the publishers may have decided that the majority of the readers are likely to be female, so they will design the cover that way. But my response always is, but I'm perfectly happy to pick up a thriller which might have on its cover a silhouette of a man from behind holding a gun at a target, and therefore very much aimed at male readers. But that wouldn't stop me reading it if I were told it was a good thriller. You had an interesting piece in the essay about uh, the Norwegian author Carl Ove Knausgaard. Um, you write, um, he was fated for his six-volume autobiographical novel, My Struggle, a minutely detailed account of his domestic life that would probably have been deemed inconsequential if written by a woman. Uh, I think you're right. What, what What is it about a man like him that gave him the quote-unquote authority to write these long books about his own domestic situation? I think being a man. I mean, if, it, if it's written by a man, it's not inconsequential. If it's written by a woman, it is. And there are real double standards when it comes to judging books by women and by men. So I quote Kamala Shamsi, who wrote a fantastic novel called Home Fire, which is a retelling of the Antigone myth, but in... Uh, contemporary Britain, and it has all sorts of themes about terrorism, about politics, about loyalty, and there is also a love affair. But it was very much portrayed, she said, as a sort of romantic domestic novel, even though I'm pretty sure if it had been written by a man, it would have been seen as a sort of state of the nation novel. Do you think that reviewers then, whether they're male or female, tend to um, tend to be biased in terms of writing about books by men and women? I think they quite often are, yes. Not necessarily consciously biased. And a lot of the book is about unconscious bias. We don't realise we're doing this. 
Um, but yes, I mean, many more men in most publications, but not all these days, there are many more male reviewers than female reviewers, and they're more likely to review books by men than books by women. And when it comes to recommendations, of course, a review can be bad as well as good. But when it comes to recommendations, which is people saying this is the these are one of the best books of the year or whatever, men are much more likely to recommend books by other men than books by women, whereas women are on the whole very even handed. So if you look at the New York Times by the books column where people are asked what's on their bedside table or what effectively what are their favorite and most influential books? 80% of the books recommended by men are by male authors and only 20% by female authors. For women, again, it's 50-50. You quote Mary Beard on explaining this. Um, you say that um, she was once on a, a book prize panel and she said, it was absolutely clear to me that the men pick really lengthy books. They would pick them up and say, this is a really weighty contribution. And what they meant was this is a very male contribution. We had... Um, Mary Beard on the show recently talking about um, 12 Caesars images of Roman autocracy, male Roman autocracy. Has anything changed in the last 2000 years since the Romans, Marianne? Yeah, no, obviously the world is better for women than it was 2000 years ago. I mean, it's Why obviously? Women, it's better than women than, than, than it was 20 years ago. It is certainly improving. But the point of my book is that we're absolutely not there yet. And there are lots of men, I think, who believe that we've achieved gender equality. Don't have to worry about that anymore. Women are getting all the best jobs. It's white men who are being oppressed. And uh, I have quite a lot of evidence to prove that we've still got a very long way to go, not least in our everyday interactions with each other. And so when I talk about the authority gap, what I'm talking about is the extent to which we're still more reluctant to accord authority to women than to men. And therefore we tend to underestimate them. We often patronize them, interrupt them or talk over them, resist allowing their views to influence ours and resist their authority if they're in a position of authority. So these are everyday interactions that piss the hell out of women. I mean, it is really annoying to be treated like that. I mean, imagine, you know, you're a man. Imagine if every time you try to make a point at a meeting, a woman just talked over you. Or you make a point and no one takes any notice. Ten minutes later, a woman makes the same point and it's treated like the second coming. Imagine if a woman says, oh, no, don't worry, I, I don't think you know enough about that to opine. Or if a woman resisted you as a boss merely because you were a man. Or if every time you, you know, produced an opinion online on Twitter, you got rape or death threats in reply. I mean, it wouldn't be great, would it? But this is the world in which we live the other way around. We did a show um, last year with an American writer, Martin Gurry. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He teaches at East Coast University. He talks about the broader crisis of authority in the 21st century. He doesn't break it down in terms of male and female. Do you think there is a crisis of authority or do you think that the uh, authority of the male is still pretty much intact in our early 21st century world? Yeah, I've only been looking at it in gender terms. I think the authority of the male is still very much intact and women are struggling to be accorded the same authority. They do sometimes succeed. And I interviewed about 40 incredibly successful and authoritative women in the course of researching this book, you know, former prime ministers and presidents and presidents of the Supreme Court and generals in the army and bishops and movie directors and that sort of thing. 
And a lot of them said, once I got to the very top, people treated me with as much respect as they did my male colleagues. But even then, they didn't always. So, for instance, Mary McAleese told me the story of leading a delegation to the Vatican to meet the Pope when she was president of Ireland. So very, very formal occasion. And there she is at the head of the delegation in the audience room. In comes the Pope, flanked by his cardinals to be introduced to the president. He walks straight past her, sticks out his hand to her husband instead, who's standing next to her, and says, wouldn't you prefer to be president of Ireland rather than married to the president of Ireland? The delegation was stunned, as you can imagine. It was the most incredible breach of protocol, not to speak of being extraordinarily rude. Um, but her husband knew better than to take the bait. So Mary McAleese grabbed the Pope's hand, which was hovering in midair, brought it back to herself and said, let me introduce myself. I am the president of Ireland, Mary McAleese, elected by the people of Ireland, whether you like it or whether you don't. And the Pope said afterwards, oh, I'm sorry, I was just joking and I heard you had a sense of humour, which I'm afraid is a classic thing that women often get. You know, if you ever complain about this sort of thing, you're accused of just being humorless. And she said, I do have a sense of humour, but that really wasn't funny because you would not have said that to a male president. What about the issue, um, Marianne, about um, authoritarianism and the response, perhaps, of men? There's a, certainly a, a very profound, interesting imbalance in terms of how men vote in the United States, much, much more likely to vote for somebody like Donald Trump. Certainly the rise of neo-authoritarianism around the world, whether it's Hungary or Russia or China or Turkey or Brazil or the Philippines, tends to be with men. Is, is there a male reaction to um, the rise of women? And, and I use that Ooh. word carefully because, as you suggest, it's not as simple to talk about this rise. It's perhaps exaggerated. That's interesting. So women are to blame for the rise of the strongman authoritarian. Uh, no, I didn't I say that. I said, can, can we explain, no, can we explain the male voter in voting for men like Trump uh, and supporting Erdogan or Orban? There's okay. A... Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think there is. Actually, I think you do have a point there um, because the second biggest predictor of voting for Trump in 2016 after being a Republican, was holding what are called hostile sexist views. So, you know, pretty extreme sexist views. And men with those views are much more likely to vote for Trump than for anyone else. And in fact, if you look at the pattern of voting in 2016, as many women voted for Hillary Clinton as voted for Obama, but it was men who peeled off to vote for Trump. And so if as many men had supported Clinton as had supported Obama, she would have won that election. Yeah, there is something, there is some ghastly appeal, some sort of toxic masculine appeal in these men, isn't there? Uh, it's pretty depressing. Well, I'm speaking with Marianne Seacott, the author of The Authority Gap. Mary, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Mary, not Mary, you're going to kill me if I call you Mary. Marianne. Yeah, and, uh, uh, we're going to take a quick break with Marianne. And then afterwards, we're going to talk about more about this authority gap why women are still taken less seriously than men, and above all else, of course, what we generally, men and women, can do about it. So we'll be back in 60 seconds with Marianne Seacott. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching 
or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. Uh, we're back with Marianne Seacott, the author of The Authority Gap. Uh, Marianne, a couple of weeks ago, I had your friend or our mutual friend, Julia Hobsbawm, on the show. She actually introduced me to you. She has a new book out about the nowhere office, about the impact of COVID on work. What's your sense of the impact over the last two years on the authority gap? Has it changed anything? Changes in work habits? Changes in domestic life? Or has it actually compounded the authority gap, the COVID crisis? Uh, I think the lack of willingness for a lot of fathers to step up to the plate during lockdowns has exacerbated difficulties for women. Uh, I think both here in the UK and in the US, women, mothers that is, took a really disproportionate share of the unpaid work at home, uh, the homeschooling, the childcare and everything else during lockdowns, even if they too had jobs. And therefore, they were trying to combine looking after the children, cooking however many meals a day for everybody and cleaning and having a job. A lot of women said it felt like going back to the 50s, except they weren't just a housewife. They were working, too. And um, I was very disappointed, actually, that on average, men didn't contribute more to that. And I think that made the authority gap wider because the implication of it was my job is more important than your job. And of course, it meant that women were much more susceptible to burnout. And I think we've probably seen some of that in the great resignation since. Marianne, what about the demographic uh, issue of the age gap? Uh, had uh, earlier this week two young, actually English uh, journalists, Maddie Anstruther and Anya Gira, both students at Cambridge University. They've started an interesting new magazine offering a voice for young people, not just young women, but they happen to be young women founders and editors of this journal. Um, do you see a big difference demographically in generational terms about uh, the challenges of younger women 
uh, versus women perhaps of your age? Much less than I had expected. I, I had expected the young generation to be much, much less biased and sexist than the older generation. And I thought that with the cohort effect, this will all eventually come out in the wash and in you know 50 years time, we won't even be talking about gender inequality. Sadly, and surprisingly, young men seem to be just as biased as older men. And that really surprised me because if you look at millennials and Gen Zs, their antennae are so acutely attuned to anything that smacks of racism or homophobia or transphobia, but not so much, it appears, when it comes to sexism. So, for instance, one big study um, asked thousands of people from all over the world whether women were suited to leadership in all sorts of fields. And when it came to whether women are equally suited to political leadership, young men were actually more sexist than older men. They were more likely to say that women weren't suited to political leadership. And then another academic study I cite of biology students who are by definition 19, 20, 21 year olds, they were asked to nominate the smartest and best informed member of their class at several points throughout the year. The young women were very accurate and managed to pinpoint who were the smartest and best informed members of their class. The young men overwhelmingly chose other young men, even when the women were smarter and better informed. And that bias actually increased during the course of the year, even as they were more exposed to these very smart and well-informed women. So that surprised and saddened me. Speaking of young men, I had a young man on the show yesterday, Jeff Rosenthal. He's one of the four co-founders, all male, of course, of Summit, one of the big tech networking events. And I asked him, I don't think he particularly liked this question, of whether only rich people could afford, and this is the subtitle of his big, uh, very Silicon Valley kind of book, Thinking Big, Chasing Dreams and Building Community. But perhaps I should have asked him whether it's only rich men who can afford to think big, chase dreams and big and build community. In Silicon Valley out here, uh, Marianne, there's an enormous imbalance between men and women. Are you particularly troubled by that? Do you write about that in your book, uh, The Authority Gap, uh, The Silicon Valley Gap when it comes to men and women? I do, yes. Uh, and it is extremely worrying. I mean, one of the reasons these men are richer is because more than 95% of venture capital funds go to companies run by men. Women get less than 5% of women-run companies. So it's very hard for women to, they may think big, but it's very hard for them to grow big if they can't attract the investment in the first place. And that's mainly because the venture capital firms themselves are almost entirely run by men. They have a very bro culture. They tend to support other men who they've been at Harvard or Yale or Princeton with. And it's really hard for women to break in, even if they've been to the same colleges themselves. And even if they do get into the tech world, they are patronized and underestimated even more probably than in most other fields, because there's a lot of what women call techno chauvinism in tech fields, there is this assumption that men are going to be better at it than women. Based on entirely incorrect evidence, I mean, there's no, there's no suggestion that female tech engineers are any less good at their jobs or female coders than male coders, but the men go in with this default expectation that women won't know as much as they do. And it drives women out of tech. And so it becomes self-fulfilling. There are now actually probably fewer women in tech. I think there are a smaller percentage of, of women in tech now 
than 10 or 15 years ago, which is completely different from almost every other field. Marianne, perhaps then is the answer, if not Silicon Valley, more tech itself. I had earlier this week the female AI expert, Bina Amanath, on the show. She has a, a new book out about how AI can finally solve the problem of diversity. Artificial intelligence can, can um, confront your authority gap. Do you have any hope in technology as the fix to the authority gap? Not really, because I think it's all about human interactions. I mean, it's important to take the bias out of AI. There is, at the moment, still quite a lot of bias in AI, particularly because it goes on what's happened before. So, for instance, there was that scandal at Amazon where pretty much every female CV was just rooted out and thrown away at the application stage because the algorithm was looking for people who, who were like the people already there at Amazon. And since most of the people already there at Amazon were male, they assumed that if you were female, you weren't going to be a good fit. And so, you know, there is a lot of bias in algorithms that I hope... That, I think that that's, um, that's Bina's point, is that that bias can be programmed in, or should we, should we put it, programmed out mm. of something like AI. So you mm. could add, you could, you, could, you could program it in a way to recognize, address those biases. Do you believe that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it is possible to do so. Another academic study uh, looked at male hirers, female hirers and an algorithm uh, to see how they evaluated potential candidates. And the algorithm was very accurate. The female hirers were very accurate. But 70 percent of the men evaluated a man more highly than a woman for achieving exactly the same goals. And that rose to 75 percent for men in senior positions. So, yes, in that case, certainly the algorithm was a lot less biased than the men. But you Why have to put into making sure that the algorithm won't be biased. And I think the reason they quite often have been biased is that they've been designed almost entirely by men in a very male and rather sexist culture. And no one has said, hang on a minute, what about the bias? Yeah, well, that's exactly what she's saying. And that's why she has hope. But as you suggest, if if all the programmers and all the big tech companies are, are run and owned by men, then that's harder. What about the traditional labor struggle? In the old days, um, Mary Ann, we would have run to the barricades on these issues. Had a young union activist, Daisy Pitkin, on the show recently. She has an interesting new book out on unionization. And she argues that it's women who are leading today's struggle. Is this a repeat in some ways of the 19th century struggle between um, Marx's idea of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, should we be going, or should women at least be organizing and in, in, in unionizing as a way of addressing these issues? Well, the trouble is it's very hard to complain to a union about the fact that your boss tends to interrupt you while you're talking, or that you feel that bias was at play in a promotion decision, because these are all covert instances of sexism rather than overt. And I think in the old days when there were dinosaurs who said, you know, you've got to leave your job as soon as you marry if you're female, or, you know, we don't appoint mothers beyond a certain position. That was the sort of thing that unions could campaign against and negotiate and try to improve prospects for female workers. But when it's covert sexism, 
it's when you sort of have an inkling that your boss doesn't really appreciate your talents and prefers your male colleague because he reminds him of himself at a younger age. That's not the sort of thing that a union rep can do anything about. It's, it's much more nuanced and, and much, in a way much harder to fight. But uh, Daisy Pitkin's point is that the reality of the workplace today is that more and more women are leading unions, maybe uh, not high-end unions, but of um, menial workers, part-time workers, this new precariat. Is this one way of confronting the authority gap? Uh, you, the subtitle of your book is What We Can Do About It. Yeah, but I don't think what the I don't think what those union reps are doing is trying to get women to be taken more seriously. I think they're trying to improve their paying conditions, which is also great, and I'm very much in favour of that. But it's not really about the authority gap, I don't think. So, how, how, what do we do about the authority gap? How do we fix it? Well, I got in my last chapter. I counted the other day. I've got 140 solutions, which sounds crazy, but I look at what we can do as individuals, as parents, as partners, as colleagues, as employers, what the media can do, what governments can do, what teachers can do, you know, so there are all these different categories. But the reason that there are so many solutions is that each individual instance of the authority gap may seem quite small at the time, though very annoying, but you know, if someone interrupts you in a meeting, it's not career ending, but they accumulate, they roll up like compound interest over the course of a working life to create this huge gap in opportunity and achievement between women and men. And as a result, the solutions are also quite small in themselves. But if, you, if we start to enact a lot of them, they will make a huge difference. So I think the most important thing is for all of us to recognize that however intelligent or liberal or even female we are, the chances are we do harbor unconscious bias against women. I do, and I've written a whole book about it. And I notice myself doing it, but I then correct for it. So, you know, maybe I hear a young woman being interviewed on the radio and her voice is quite high and she sounds childish in the way that men can't because their voices break. And I might initially think, oh, I wonder if she knows what she's talking about. But then immediately I'll go, no, stop it. Listen to the content of what she's saying. Don't judge her by the pitch of her voice and then make a judgment. So I notice myself doing it and then correct for it. And that's what I'm that's the main thing I, I'm asking everybody to do is notice when this unconscious bias manifests itself consciously and then do something about it. It's called unconscious for a reason. We can't we can't put a lid on it and we needn't feel ashamed of it, but we can notice. And I think probably the other most important thing I would say is don't mistake confidence for competence because they are two very different things. And on average, men are socialized to appear more confident than women. And even if women do appear as confident as men, that doesn't solve the problem because then we quite often dislike them and start using words about them like abrasive or strident or aggressive or bossy or overbearing. You know, these are adjectives that are never used of men showing exactly the same characteristics. And so men get away with a lot more because they are allowed to be confident, to blow their own trumpets, to promote themselves in a way that we don't allow women to do. And then we mistake their confidence for competence. So what I would say is don't take people at their word. Don't assume they are as good or as self-deprecating, you know, as modest as they say they are. Look at what they've actually achieved before you decide who to promote, who to hire, who to value. 
And what would you say to men who simply say, I, I don't care, it doesn't bother me. And I, I, I may I may have all these unconscious biases, but I got way too many more important things to worry about. Okay. What I would tell men is that you actually have an enormous amount to gain from narrowing the authority gap. And you may think that sounds ridiculous and it's counterintuitive. Isn't gender equality like a seesaw in which, you know, as women rise, men will fall? No, actually, bizarrely, and very cheeringly for us, it is not a zero-sum game, it's a positive-sum game. All sorts of academic studies have been done showing that both in more gender-equal countries and in more gender-equal relationships, straight relationships, that is, in which the men and the women uh, share pretty much equally the chores, the childcare, respect each other equally, all that sort of thing. Not only are the women happier and healthier, which you might expect, and the children are happier and healthier, do better at school, have a much better relationship with their dad. But the men themselves are happier and healthier. So they are twice as likely to say they're satisfied with their lives, half as likely to be depressed, much less likely to get divorced. They tend to drink less, smoke less, take fewer drugs, get more sleep at night. And here is the absolute clincher for you, Andrew. They get more frequent and better sex. So guys, I, what is yeah. it like about this? Uh, I'm guessing they all live in Denmark, do they? Uh, this is also there's also been a study done in more gender equal U.S. states, and this is also the case. Even when you adjust for income and social status, men are much happier in more gender equal states and relationships. Well, you've convinced me, Marianne. If I can get better sex, then I'm definitely going to do it. I'm all in favour of your gender gap. Excellent new book. Congratulations. Um, Finally, uh, the book is, is it just out um, or is it, um, is it out in the US or is it uh, one of these British books that sort of find its way to America? No, it came out in the US just um, a couple of months ago. It's actually got a different cover in the US. Uh, it's sort of turquoise and orange cover. Oh, if you go a... to theauthoritygap.com, you will, you will yeah. see the US edition and more about it. Does it have a separate um, subtitle? Different, no, um, it's exactly the same, same title and subtitle, but it's a different publisher, so it has a different cover. Okay, well, one is red, one is bluish, but they're both about why women are st still taken less seriously than men and what we, men and women, can do about it. Interesting new take on that. And Marianne, congratulations on the book. What else should people be reading in April 2022 in addition to your new book, The Authority Gap? I just loved a novel I've written, re uh, read recently called The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. Uh, it is very funny, very clever, very original, has a lot of philosophy in it, but not in a heavy handed way. I enjoyed that hugely. And another book I've read very recently, which I loved, is called Ten Steps to Nanette by Hannah Gadsby. I don't know if you've come across her. She is an Australian comedian but much more than that. And she did this extraordinary uh, show called Nanette, which I saw in a tiny London fringe theater about five years ago. And then it became a complete phenomenon on Netflix. And she has written this book, which is pretty much a memoir, uh, but I recommend it very highly. No books by men, Marianne, nothing to recommend on the male writing front. I'm just trying to redress the balance, that's all. Good, good job, Marianne. And finally, Marianne Seacard, and I, I can imagine the answer to this one, the author 
author, uh, quote unquote, of the authority gap. Uh, who, who's in charge, Marianne, these days in April 2022? Who runs the world? It's still men. What do you expect me to say? <laughs> I'm afraid it's still men. <laughs>